time was when the overarching, overriding, overwhelming view of Africa was as a seat of extreme poverty that needed the world to come to its rescue. Well, in 2022, maybe a viewpoint that is quite opposite has emerged, which is that Africa can come to the rescue of a world in the midst of climate change, energy shortages, and so many other points of peril when it comes to resources. Making that argument with an incredible amount of enthusiasm and the data to back it up is Hubert Ganso, the chairman and CEO of Africa Investor, the two Ds have him, on Dave and Darm Demystified. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to today's podcast. And today we have Hubert Danso from Africa Investor join us. So Hubert, why don't you introduce yourself and perhaps tell the audience a bit about what Africa Investor is trying to achieve? Okay, fantastic. Well, real pleasure to be here, Dave and Dam. Your reputation spans the globe and we really know about you in the continent. So I take this as a really good opportunity. Look, as you know, my name is Hubert Danso. I'm the CEO and chairman of an institutional infrastructure investment platform called Africa Investor. We principally are backed by and support African pension and sovereign wealth funds get access to infrastructure as an investable asset class. And increasingly, I think, as you know, going with the trends of the day and the needs of the now, actually, as well as the future, that is predominantly focusing a lot on climate and green infrastructure, where we also have a platform called the African Green Infrastructure Investment Bank that's really focused on investing in renewables, clean and green technologies that would be essential for Africa's transition. And then I sit on a number of other advisory boards. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, I sit on his Accounting for Sustainability Advisory Board. Similarly, I chair the African Union's Continental Business Network, which brings together institutional investors, as we describe it, domestic capital, to work with African heads of state to help them understand you know, how to create that enabling environment to attract and retain and grow private capital around domestic as well as cross-border infrastructure assets. In and again, a number of other advisory boards that chair the CFA Society in New York. They have a Global Asset Owners Council made up of all of their members from around the world that are either pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments or foundations. I chair that group. And there we really just look at how can institutional private capital better interlock with some of the big global development agendas the sustainable development goals being the principal one as the overall framework. And then within that, the climate focus, all of those commitments, you know, made around net zero and the Paris Agreement, we do quite a bit as far as that's concerned. And of course, 
when you come from a part of the world like Africa, although I'm often told that it's not just Africa that has this issue, but you know, the just transition and ensuring that there's a just energy transition where we don't just focus on ESG in the context of E being so important for us in the continent. And I know that Australia have the same view, certain parts of the US and other areas around the world. We see ESG in a sort of context that I'll explain to you very briefly. We see the E in ESG essentially being the net present value of the S. In other words, why are we placing so much emphasis on you know, creating a more hospitable and tenable environment if it's not for society to be able to exist and flourish and prosper? So in our part of the world, it's very, very important considering we're only contributing a, what, 3% of the cumulative emissions globally, that we just don't leave a lot of our people and our societies behind. So we do quite a bit on that. I sit on Mary Robinson's got a business for human rights group. There's a group of investors that are part of that, Calsters, a number of the big pension funds. So I get quite involved in that area of work, as well as the work with the World Benchmarking Alliance's Just Transition Advisory Group. So I'll leave it there as a bit of an introduction. It sounds like you're a busy man, to be honest. Dave, as they say, sleepers for wimps. (laughs) (laughs) Full disclosure, Dharmish and I, Dharma was born in Uganda and I was born in Kenya. So we're, I guess, at our heart, very pro-Africa. It's great to hear how what you are doing is trying to be. And I think one of the, I guess, immediate questions for me was the climate agenda. There's a real sense of urgency around it. And that's from a Western perspective, is that urgency felt in Africa as well? And is that then really driving innovation and thinking out of African nations? And from what you're saying, you're trying to get the investment to kind of really capitalise on what people are doing. So I guess, what's the urgency? You know, you make the point again about Africa is responsible for a tiny proportion of emissions, but the impact, I guess, is going to be felt quite keenly in some places. What's the kind of feeling around that as well, in terms of what people are thinking about? Great question, Dave. Look, it depends who you're asking. If you ask a government, they will tell you that, look, we've made our commitments. I think over 30 odd countries have made a net zero commitments and aspirations. But again, it needs to be financed. If you ask the investment community, particularly my constituency of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and institutional investors, we see the climate agenda as probably one of the best investment opportunities of our lifetime. Right. So you've got to be able to sort of intermediate the two. And as you say, this equity issue around the percentage of the responsibility that comes from Africa towards this whole global plight I think there was an effort at the global level to try to bring some equity into that conversation by way of a $100 billion a year commitment from industrialized countries to be able to provide $100 billion each year for developing countries and Africa to be able to fund the transition, both mitigation as well as adaption projects. So here's the challenge. The challenge is that money hasn't come in the way that it was promised to come, but the aspirations still remain. So we're really having to step in now to try to move some of the pieces around on the chessboard, if you like, to figure out how do we optimize and get to the end goal, which is that net zero aspiration. How are we looking at that? Ultimately, we invest in projects. We want to invest in projects that can deliver growth and deliver good returns and that obviously can have a very positive impact in the environment as a consequence and in that process. So Africa, 
the projects that come out of the whole climate agenda are known as nationally determined contribution projects. They are the projects that governments make a commitment to as part of the COP process, the big meeting that you all saw hosted in Glasgow last year. It's going to be hosted in Africa this year. Right. So those projects called the National Determined Contribution Projects, we the acronym NDC projects, Africa has $3 trillion worth of nationally determined contribution projects to deliver by 2030. Okay, so just think about that for a second. But also understand this, the world has only been able to mobilize $2.8 trillion in the last 20 years for renewable investments, renewable energy-related investments. That's the year 2000 to the year 2020. So you can already begin to see the Herculean task that Africa has you know, having to mobilize more in the next eight years than the world was only able to mobilize in the last 20 years. And of that 2.8 trillion, which is the global investment that's gone into renewable energy, Africa only got 2% of that. So the reality is we have to do everything differently. And unfortunately, I always say, although some of my best colleagues and friends live in that space, Africa has really become under a stranglehold of the development community. So everything becomes a development project. Ambition is always pushed down into a little matchbox when really the opportunity is is incredible. And then when you look at the African continent, you know, the reason we established the African Green Infrastructure Investment Bank, by the way, that model is borrowed from the UK. When the UK established the UK Green Investment Bank, when the government realized that they didn't have enough capital to be able to fund the offshore wind market. So that was the market failure that they were looking at. So the market failure that we're looking at is how do you intermediate three odd trillion dollars worth of investment when you don't have a single at scale, purely green financial institution? The African Development Bank is not purely green. It doesn't operate in terms of private capital at scale. So we think that there's a real market opportunity. And again, it's not all sort of doom and gloom. We need the capital. You know, we've gone through so many different industrial revolutions of our time, the tech revolution, the knowledge economy. Well, right now we're essentially at the natural capital economy. You know, if you look at the sun, the wind, I mean, Africa has 180,000 terawatt hours per year of technical wind capacity. And that is enough to electrify the continent 250 times over. Right. If you marry that with the energy needs of the rest of the world. You can begin to see Africa being a net exporter of some real natural capital. And if you look at the carbon credit markets that are evolving under Article 6 of the agreement and the carbon markets and the carbon exchanges, it was valued about four weeks ago that Africa has, if you look at natural capital being the new store of wealth, Africa has $4.8 trillion worth of natural capital between now and 2030. So it's really time for innovation, private sector thinking, private capital mobilization. But we realize, Dave and Dom, you know, it's not all fairy tales and it's much easier said than done. So what we've done outside of setting up the bank is really understood that how can we work more closely with the governments to create that enabling legal and regulatory framework that can accomplish, in our view, two key things. One, the ability to mobilize capital at scale. Right. And two, the ability to deploy that capital at speed. So, you know, we don't want this historic 
PPP, you know, the public private partnership legal and regulatory frameworks that can take anywhere between eight and 12 years for a project to go from concept phase to financial close. We need a legal and regulatory framework that is much more private capital friendly for us as long-term investors, as equity investors, as actual owners of the assets. And the market has really been held a little bit, as I mentioned before, hostage to the multilateral development banks that represent probably, if you bring them all together, they're worth about $1.5 trillion balance sheet collectively. If you now look at the pools of capital that Africa has historically not been engaging because it's been spending all of its time with the development partners doing subscale development projects, subsistence financing, where success is you're just able to repay the little loan that you've taken rather than in the rest of the world, you grow and you prosper and you scale. That's the way that the continent is now looking. We're now looking much more at how do we have a better engagement, a better strategic fit a better alignment with the 150 trillion plus pool of capital without obsessing and overextending ourselves to please the 1.5 trillion dollar balance sheet of the development partners and just finally on this point let me talk about climate change and if you can picture a different narrative taking account of the natural capital stock of say 4.8 trillion and then you look at a 10.25 global green industrial economy that is only going in one direction. It's going to be growing fast. And then you sort of reconcile that with the fact that Africa is less than 2% of that, but we've got a $4.8 trillion stock. Global capital understands that narrative. It's not a poverty narrative. It is a gold rush narrative. So in the African continent, we now have governments that are sort of leading this whole new trade and investment agenda, although it's called the African continental free trade area which was set up and went operational last year, supported by over 50 African governments, heads of state. That basically has now created and represents the largest free trade area, you know, since the establishment of the World Trade Organization. So that is going to be a really important platform that intermediates again the world that we live in. What is the world that we live in? It is this, as you know, the rest of the world has to decarbonize, Africa has to industrialize. And that's how you lift people out of poverty and get them into some form of decent life, decent work, and more responsible players within the overall global economic system. So that's heavy focus on tech, reg tech, fintech, all the sort of climate and green tech related opportunities linked into industrial new technologies, industrial processes to feed into that global green industrial complex, that growing economy. So I think the narrative has changed. It's just that not everyone has sort of caught up with it. It's so interesting to hear. And I feel a real buzz about it because I can kind of absolutely see what you're saying. You know, as I've been pondering things like climate change, one of the things that is an obvious one is like Africa has a very young population, often highly educated, highly skilled people. Dave, let me just jump in there. As you talk about this young population, I'm presuming that you know and your viewers know that in the next eight years, by 2030, going to 2050, our youth population will be 25% of the world's population. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then on top of that, by the end of the century, we will have 50% of the world's youth will be African. Yeah, you sort of look at that and what you're talking about, this green industrialization, and you go, yeah, actually, I can see how that would really work, to be honest with you, in terms of mobilizing a younger population who there's a huge job to be done. It's incredible when you talk about 
the wind opportunity, but I guess the solar opportunity must be massive as well. I mean, I was in Egypt earlier on this year on the shores of the Red Sea, and I said to my kids, if you walked, I think, 4,000 miles, you'd end up on the Atlantic coast in Mauritania yeah. or somewhere like that. And it's sowing hugely, and you would not leave the desert one stretch of that. Yeah. So I can kind of really see what you're saying in terms of all of this. One question I've got is in terms of how you're working across borders. So you're looking at how do you finance things which would work across countries, is that? Or are you having to think about things in a more nationalistic agenda? We look first and foremost at where is the opportunity and how can that opportunity align with our investment policy statements and how do those opportunities match up against any other market-related opportunities. And then we look at where are those opportunities situated? Do they cross borders into multiple jurisdictions? But I mean, what is a multi-jurisdictional project? A multi-jurisdictional project in the European sense is the Eurotunnel, is the Eurostar. I mean, these are happening you know, all the time. There's some very lucrative opportunities that are attached to them. And that's exactly how you're going to enfranchise industry, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises, by creating those infrastructure-driven, clean supply chains and new trade corridors. So there's some really exciting opportunities linked into that. And why is it slightly different from what we've had before? Because a lot of the infrastructure on the continent has been designed to just evacuate raw materials. And those raw materials that go out Actually, to borrow someone else's phrase, make Africa the largest donor to the world ever. Yeah. Why? Because we send out all the raw materials and then we effectively buy a lot of them back in. So we actually import, it's called import substitution. We actually import the same raw materials that we've sent out that have then had value added to them outside of the continent. And we spend about $30 billion on that each year. So, you know, look at the opportunity that we've evacuated and sort of given at a very low base to the rest of the world. And we only end up representing about 2% of global trade. So it's a blank sheet of paper for long-term investors. And that's why big pension funds and sovereign funds are saying, you know what, this is the next bet. And this is a great bet because not only are we investing in all of these opportunities, but we can be off takers. So, you know, you've now got big European pension funds investing in green hydrogen projects across Africa, and then the EU are buying, European countries are actually going to be buying that green hydrogen. Yeah. So you're actually investing in one currency, getting your return in another currency, and getting really good opportunities associated with ticking the ESG box, ticking the decarbonization box, ticking the supporting the real economy box. And it's not easy for people. And I don't turn around and think, oh, you've got a prejudice against the continent because you're not investing. A very good job has been done on defining the continent as this place of poverty, as this place that has no economic opportunity. And look, everyone has their own narrative. But all I say to colleagues is I put the numbers in front of them. We work out models that say, look, you know, how can we manage these risks associated with these transactions? And are they representing good returns? And that's how we must look at the continent, not through the lens of a World Bank that's put out a report that is designed to keep it in business for another 15, 20 years or to sell its own products, but rather what is the broader economic opportunity? And the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds are really getting their heads, arms and legs around that because our platform as the African Green Infrastructure Investment Bank really is made up of equity investors. We're all aligned in terms of how we look at investments, how we want to do investments. And we are working almost as a coalition of peers. 
So that's the new difference. Gone are the days when a business or an investor would fly into an African country and their first meeting would be, I want to see the president. No, they're right now saying, where do I now go and see my peer? That's also another investor and, and figure out what they're looking at. We've got similar diligence processes. We get access to data rooms and we figure out how we can actually execute on those transactions and scale them where possible. Let's say, because now, you know, we're in a different situation in the world with the war in Ukraine and Russia and people start to understand that we can't be beholden to power supplies, right? But let's say you've got, you know, enough capital. How quickly can Africa move to put in this infrastructure and how much of an impact can it make to climate change? Just as fast as it could be put in anywhere else in the world. Right, right, right. So it would be more about prioritizing in Africa versus doing it somewhere else where it would be cheaper to do, right? It would be both. It would be cheaper and smarter. Right. Because if you can sort of take off the blinkers and the prejudices that you may have grown up with, the data is clear. If you look at the population, if you look at the natural capital endowment, if you look at the strategic positioning, few miles from Europe, port, you know, the links into the Middle East, links into North Africa. I mean, it's just basic. But again, like I say, there's such a great weapon of mass distraction job that's happened in terms of characterizing the continent as a poor continent, when in fact, it's probably the richest continent. Right now, most European leaders are rushing to Africa. We've just had Russia rushing to Africa. We've just had Secretary Blinken and all the US government rushing to Africa. We have the majority of the natural minerals and rare earths that are going to drive the EV markets. I mean, it's just so obvious, you know, so... That's the challenge. And that's really how smart investors have been able to decouple themselves. Because when you look at the natural resource endowment, the link into that, the green technologies and the battery industry and the electric vehicles market and the wind turbines, all of that. And then you look at the population and then you look at all of the potential offtakes in a growing 10.5 trillion and growing market of which you are a universal owner of those assets. So you can already have some form of strategic way to ensure security of supply because you're already invested in one part of the chain. That is the way smart investors are already getting in on the ground floor, working directly with peers. And these peers are, in many cases, quasi-government. The Sovereign Wealth Fund is a quasi-government investor. So that immediately gives you a de-risking factor because you're co-investing with the government. So if the government create a problem around that investment, they're creating a problem for their own investment. So there's that alignment of interest. It's a completely new strategic co-investment model that you're not going to hear the development partner world talking about. You're going to hear serious investors talking about that. Elon Musk is out there trying to buy mines left, right, and center. The smart money is just going into Africa very, very fast. And so it should. And again, if you look at the sustainable development goals, that's already been foreseen from 2015, where it talked about sustainable development goal number 17. It talks about, you know, north-south partnerships, capital mobilization style partnerships. And that's exactly what the majority of the institutional investment community are pursuing. The whole thing is flipping from a kind of donor-based model or a loan-based model to a capital-based model where there's an investment opportunity, which I think is really, really, really fascinating and really positive 
story so i mean it's so good to kind of hear you talk about this so good to hear your energy as well mm. this is not a simple job at all is it this is a massive job we don't go to the moon because it's easy <laughs> no 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 but i mean in the process you talked about like how people view africa and the continent you've got to almost rebrand the whole thing from what you're saying and what i've heard is a really fabulous opportunity to do that you know it's extremely exciting to be honest no, absolutely. What would you say is your biggest challenge at the moment then? Is it the notion that you know, Africa is a poor country, poor infrastructure, or what is it that's holding back investment today? I think one of the things that's holding back investment is the business models. You know that saying that goes, the learners will inherit the earth, while the learned will be perfectly equipped to manage a world that no longer exists. <laughs> so we have a lot of institutions that are so wedded to this poverty narrative and this development narrative that they have been designed to be catalytic for private capital, particularly the multilateral development banks. But right now, their business models sit right in the middle of exponential change. So there's a lot of work going in. Prince Charles is leading a lot of work. The net zero asset owners. I mean, the big pools of institutional capital are begging a begging the multilateral development banks to change their business model so that they can be catalytic and that they can de-risk very large pools of capital to be able to participate. But they're very stubborn. They are still feeling that they are beautifully equipped to manage a world that no longer exists. And that's where it's going to be made or broken. But the interesting and good thing about that that we're seeing is that the general publics like yourself, Dave, you've just being in Africa and you know your kids have been in Africa they can see it for themselves social media is out there you know enfranchising mindsets to be able to take a different view over time I think the key stumbling block that could be translated into a good opportunity is for the multilateral development banks to change their business model from an originate and hold in other words providing loans to an originate and share which is where they take first loss more credit enhancement where they de-risk private capital look 1.5 trillion can never provide the support that you know just in africa it's three trillion let alone other parts of the developing world so we're saying but that 1.5 trillion can catalyze tens of trillions and hundreds of trillions if it de-risks the right forms of transactions and starts working with sophisticated markets like lloyd's and other insurance and other credit enhancement markets so when that shift happens done not only in africa but all around developing countries and emerging markets i think you will see a very different positive economic outcome fantastic well listen thank you so much for joining us it's been a really really brilliant introduction to what you're doing is there if people want to find out more is the africa investor website a good place to start yes absolutely okay absolutely so if they can go to www.africainvestor.com that's where you'll find information on africa investor and if you want to specifically go in and find a bit more about the african green infrastructure investment bank you go to www.afgiib.com and thank you again for having us it's been a real pleasure to engage with you and your audience keep us all inspired keep us all inspired keep pushing for that transition to happen so that we can pay it forward to future generations as well thank you very much awesome message thank you so much that was superb i mean just mind-blowing so thank you so much pleasure have a great day
Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.